in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. I don't know about you, but it just feels like the book of Revelation is just kind of really serious, and it is, and a lot of times life is really serious because it is, and so I thought we'd start out today having a little fun. We need to laugh and play a little game, okay? And the game that we're going to play is called Pop Song or Song. And what you need to do, you can't cheat, don't look it up on Google, don't talk to the person next to you. You need to figure out if what I'm going to put on the screen is a lyric from a popular pop song or it is something from the book of Psalms, okay? Keep track of your score. Let's see if you can get six out of six. Here's the first one. My sunrise on the darkest day. Is that a pop song lyric or is that from the book of Psalms? Okay, think about it. Don't say it out loud. Don't cheat. All right, you ready? Desposito, Justin Bieber. Some of you guys knew that. I knew you would. All right, next one. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, a close friend. Pop song or psalm? Anticipation, you can cut with a knife. Psalm 5513. Anybody two for two? Okay, not a many hands in the air. Some of you don't know your Bible or Justin Bieber well, I guess. All right. They swarmed around me like bees. They swarmed around me like bees. Go through your, try to sing it out loud. Is this from a song that you work out to? Nope, it's from Psalm 118.12. Anybody three for three? Okay, only a few hands that's getting less and less. All right, and there's a hope that's waiting for you in the dark. Some of you know that this is that popular song, Scars to Your Beautiful. Pastor Mark, he sings this song all the time in our office. It's really awkward. No, he doesn't do that. He's more of an in-sync guy. Let's keep going. <laughs> I've forgiven it all. You set me free. I've forgiven it all. You set me free. Send my love, Adele. All right. Last one. The night will shine like the day. The night will shine like the day. It is from the song of Psalms, <laughs> 139, verse 12. How many got six out of six right? Raise your hand. Okay, we got two. That's it? Oh, man. Now, maybe you're saying, you know what, I knew a lot more pop song lyrics than I do the Psalms. And let me tell you, that's okay. We are here to meet people where they're at. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you don't open the Bible a lot, or just something that's not really in you, I want you to know that we're not here to judge you. In fact, I want to envision you that today be the day where you're like, you know what, I want to start taking the Bible serious. And I'm going to tell you in a little while how you can do that. I'm hoping that is for you today. Maybe for you, you didn't know the pop songs really well, but you knew the scripture references. And maybe you got all those right. And what I want to tell you is that's great. You can recognize scripture you can know a lot of scripture, you can have scripture in your coffee mugs, you can have it plastered on your walls, but just because you recognize scripture and know scripture doesn't mean that scripture knows you. You see, there's a difference between knowing a lot of Bible verses and actually living them out, letting them shape you, letting them transform you, letting them satisfy you. In fact, Dallas Willard, he puts it this way, knowing about things knowing what they are, being able to identify them and say them, does not mean we actually believe them. 
When we truly believe what we profess, we are set to act as if they're true. And acting as if things are true means, in turns, we live out as if they were so. You see, you and I can have the whole Bible memorized, and that would be great. But if the Bible isn't shaping us, if it's not transforming us, if it's not changing us, then it means nothing. For the Bible isn't something that we just read. It should be something that we read and live. It doesn't just come into our minds. It should come into our minds and our hearts. And as we continue into the book of Revelation today, we'll be in chapter 10, so go ahead and turn there. But what you're going to discover really quickly is Revelation 10 and God and and through John is going to tell us a lot about what we ought to do to take those next steps in taking Scripture very seriously to the point where it's not just in us, but it's in us and coming out of us. So turn to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be in the first three verses as we kick things off today. And here's what it says. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over its head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. Now you can't help but read Revelation and not notice that there's references to angels all over the place. In fact, it's referenced in the book of Revelation over 60 times. And an angel is simply a messenger or a communicator on God's behalf. And in this case, we see that this angel is mighty, which means it's probably one of those angels that's really majestic and large in stature. And John took notice of how majestic and mighty this angel really is. But you'll notice above the angel, there's two things, a cloud and a rainbow. Well, the clouds symbolize judgment. And if you're familiar with Revelation, and we've seen it in the last five chapters, we're going to see it for the next quite a few chapters. Judgment is a big deal. And like we established last week, God has to be a judge. We need him to be a judge. And that's a good thing. That cloud represents that. But it's not just a cloud. There's also a rainbow. Why a rainbow? If you go back In Genesis, all the way back, and you see Noah and the flood and all these storms. Afterwards, God gives a rainbow to remind them of his covenant, of his faithfulness, of his mercy. That no matter what happened, that won't happen again. In fact, when they go through these storms or these floods, that rainbow was assurance that God is with them no matter what. I don't know why. But Ohio weather has been crazy this summer. There has been more rain than I have ever seen. I am mowing my lawn twice a day, it feels like. There is a lot of rain. And I remember last week, my daughters and I were going to pick up pizza. And we're driving down the street, and all of a sudden this torrential downpour came. And then afterwards, we're driving home, and there's this beautiful rainbow. And I was thinking to myself, this text, I was thinking about this symbol of a rainbow. But God's faithfulness, like there was a a, a torrential downpour I could barely see, but then afterwards the, the skies parted and there was a rainbow. And it wasn't just this beautiful sign of God's creation, it was a beautiful sign that God is faithful. So I don't know what storms you're going through, I don't know the hard things that you're walking through, I just know that you are. And God's promise, even in this image that we see in this text, is that there is a rainbow. And it's a reminder of God's faithfulness, it's a reminder of God's mercy. That though it's cloudy and dark and rainy, there is going to part, the clouds will part and there will be his faithfulness. So hold on tight. 
But not just do we see a cloud, we see a rainbow. In the angel's hand, we see a scroll. Now, there are scrolls uh, throughout Revelation. You see the scroll of the Lamb's book of life. You see the scroll of God's word. In chapter 10, we see the word scroll repeated four times. And the Greek word for scroll here is the word of God, and it's scripture. And that's exactly what the angel is holding on to. And this something powerful is going to happen with this, with this scroll. You see, after a few verses of when John and the angel are talking about more judgment in verses 5 through 7, we see in chapter 8 exactly what the angel is going to do in order to give John the scroll. So look with me again at chapter 10. Let's move ahead just a little bit to verses 8 through 11. It says, Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. It says, yes, take and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your or mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. And so I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. And then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now there are a lot of bizarre images in the book of Revelation. One of the weirdest ones is here is John literally eating a scroll. It's very bizarre. You know what if I told you it's one of the most beautiful, one of the most challenging, and one of the most encouraging images in all of Revelation. Remember I told you at the beginning that you can read God's word, you can know God's word, and it can actually mean nothing. What John is doing is taking it a step further. He is taking in God's word. He is digesting God's word. He is eating God's word to the point where it's changing his life. And that's exactly what you and I are called to do with God's word. Now before I go further, I want to just give you a disclaimer if you wouldn't mind, can you leave your Bibles and your phones on your lap? Do not eat those. It is going to be really weird if you do that. In fact, if you want to go to Sandusky Bay Pancake after this, the pancakes are so much better than what paper is. You see, John is not literally eating paper, but what he is doing is taking in God's word to the point where it is going to change his life. It will transform his life. It will satisfy his life. And that's what you and I are called to do as well. You see, Scripture tells us that it will do two specific things if we take this seriously. It is going to satisfy us, and it's going to transform us. The problem is, we don't allow it to. Think about your favorite food for a moment, your favorite restaurant, the food that you would eat at that restaurant. When you order that food, you're probably not just going to eat it really, really fast and not taste it. You're going to, you're going to take it in. You're going to take little bites. I have been known to lick my plate at a restaurant. It's very embarrassing to Paula, but I don't care. I paid for it, and it tastes really good, and I want every morsel out of it. And that's what we're supposed to do with God's word. We are to just take it slowly, enjoy every bite, even just lick up the crumbs on the plate. And if we do that, it promises to satisfy us. It promises to transform us. The problem is we don't usually have time to do that. We are so busy. And we know even when it comes to making Healthy food choices, we should always probably try to eat at home, but because we're so busy, what do we do? We opt for the unhealthiness of fast food. And yet we do that with God's word as well. Because of the convenience factor, what do we do? 
we quickly go through a beyond the weekend that the chapel sends out in hopes just to get a little inspiration for the day or hit the checkmark box on our daily tasks. Or we come to church and, and, and one of the pastors puts it on the screen and we take it in and then we go on and we don't open God's word again until the next Sunday. And we wonder why we're not healthy. We wonder why God's word isn't satisfying us and changing us like it should. Because you and I may be reading God's word, but again, it doesn't matter if God's word is not reading us. We have to slow down. We have to take it in. We have to digest it. We have to taste the sweetness and savor it like John does here as he continues to take in God's word. And when we do that, when we give God's word its due, not just to check it off, not to just get through it, not just to read it at church, but when we really take God's word seriously, it'll satisfy you and it will change you. First of all, God's word satisfies you know, our hearts, when we wake up in the morning and all throughout the day, it's happening right now, your heart is trained to obey the Trinity. Not that Trinity. The Trinity that Eugene Peterson says of our needs and our wants and our feelings. Internally inside of us and externally in our culture, we are promoting these things whether we recognize it or not. We are pursuing these things. We are going after these things because we believe if we get our needs and our wants satisfied, if we have our feelings in the right place and we feel good about life, then we are truly living the life that we want to live. Then why aren't we? Why are we more empty and dissatisfied as a society more than ever in history? We have more technology, more everything than ever, and yet we're the emptiest, unfulfilled group of people ever. Why? Because we're pursuing this trinity over and over again, thinking it will give us what we need. Eugene Peterson defines each one, and it's so interesting. He says, our needs are my non-negotiables. What are your non-negotiables that you have to have? Oftentimes, whether it's internally or externally, we're going after fulfillment, sexual satisfaction, or respect. We need things like this in order to have worth and value. And if we don't have them, then we don't. Or my wants, the things that I want in life. It's a sense of our expanding sense of self. The more that I am living for myself, I want more. And it often comes with more and more things, more and more service, more and more power. Like when it's all about me, I want more because I need more in order for it to satisfy me. Or he talks about feelings. My feelings are the truth of who I am. And I am in constant need of validation to combat boredom, loss, or discontentment. If you're not happy in life, you will go find it in some way. And what Eugene Peterson says is our internal and external life is focused upon these three things. Whether it's us pursuing those because our heart is bent towards that way or our culture preys on our needs and our desires and our feelings, we go after these things and then we wonder why are we so empty? The problem is, it forgets to tell us the disclaimer. Our culture and our hearts forget to tell us this. By the way, the more you feed the beast, the more that it needs to be satisfied. And by the way, these things that you're trying to find satisfaction in, they are insatiable. 
you can feed it and feed it and feed it and feed it for a day, a month, a year, your whole life, and you will still walk away feeling unfulfilled. You will still walk away being unsatisfied. That's why most of us and our family and friends that we know walk around with a smile on our face, and yet we're pursuing greatly these needs and these desires and these feelings, and we're despondent when we don't have it in the place that we need it. Now compare this with what Jesus says in John. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Look at that phrasing for a moment. The bread of life. You want satisfaction? Eat this bread because it will give you life. The life that you dared to hope that would happen. The life that you were created to have. Life beyond the grave. If you eat it, you will have it. Now I'm the only one that can give it to you. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. But anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you'll never have to die? And when you and I think of dying, we're thinking, okay, after the grave. And that's true. God's word promises that after the grave, if we believe in Jesus, then the grave doesn't have a hold on us. We have a hold on it. Jesus overcame the grave, and so we don't have to die. That is not what Jesus is fully talking about here. When he says you don't have to die, here's what he's saying. You don't have to walk around as if you're dead. And many of us, though we are alive, are trading that in for a life of death. Death that comes when we pursue these wants and these desires and these feelings in order to think that's when life is finally going to click and I'm finally going to be happy. But Jesus says, if you take in his word, if you take in the sweetness of it, if you enjoy it, if you hear what it says and you apply it to your life, you will have the satisfaction that you long for. Our whole world is pursuing these things and that's why it needs more and more and more. And Jesus says, if you have me, you need nothing more. If you're here and you're not satisfied in life and you're that person that has to have more, or different, or you have to be happy and content, and you'll do whatever it takes to have it, and you still don't have it, maybe you need to turn to what God's word has to say. For Jesus has bread that will satisfy you for eternity starting today. Because God's word promises to satisfy. But you can't just skim it. You just can't know it because you took a CCD class as a child. You can't just have a Bible app on your phone and never open it. You just can't go to church and say, okay, here's what Mark said or here's what Eric said. No, 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 you have to allow it to be in you. You have to eat it. Savor it. Let it come in you. You know, when I am really happy in life and I'm not connected to God's word, there is nothing that happens to me that truly can satisfy me. Like, I'm, I may be happy, but when I'm not in God's word, it feels like I'm still striving, still not content, still not at peace. But when I'm in God's word, I mean eating God's word, allowing it to shape me, even though life is falling apart, there's nothing, nothing that will give me more peace and contentment and joy than God's word. So wherever you're at, and you're looking for satisfaction, whether life is good or bad, it only comes from the bread of life, which is Jesus. He doesn't just satisfy, he also transforms us through his word. I don't know about you, but I am so aware 
of how many things that I have wrong with me. <laughs> it feels like I learn something new every day about myself that I'm like, God, I really want to change that. There's so many changes I want to make as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor. And I hope that you're the same way. Like, I want to change. And there's a lot of books and a lot of programs and a lot of gurus that say if you take this pill or if you read this book or if you start this 90-day program, by the end, you will have exactly what you want. You will be different. You will change. And then you have to go buy another book. Another guru. Another $30 subscription. But what if in God's word it tells you the plan to change? I mean talking now. The things that you don't like about yourself. The things that you cringe at when they come out of you. Those things you want to change. What if you can change now? I'm not just saying that. Now. Paul says this in, in a well-quoted verse, but it, we need to talk about it. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That's the first key. If you're going to just do what everybody says or everyone else does, don't expect to change. If you're just going to do what all your friends are doing, all your family's doing, if you're going to live that kind of life the way the world says to do it, you will never change. You may take a step forward, but you're always going to take two steps back, always. You can't copy the behavior or customs of this world, but here's the key. Let God transform you. That word transform is metamorphosis. Literally change your existence from a butterfly Sorry, from a caterpillar to a butterfly. You want to change like that? You got to change the way you think. You got to change your mind. It starts here, which is connected to here. You want to change that, then he says you'll know God's will. You want to know what God has to say. You want to know what's pleasing to him. You want to live in accordance to what God has for you. You want to know it. It starts in the mind. Well, how do you change your mind? You have to change what's coming into your mind. How do you change what's coming into your mind? You have to go to God's word. For God's word has so much to say. And not only will change who you are, but it will change your perspective. And that's what we need is this perspective shift. Imagine if God's word shaped your minds and your hearts to the point where it changed you into the person that you long to become, which is honestly to be like Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus at work, in your marriage, in your everyday life, you have to do what Jesus did. Jesus not only knew the word, but he lived the word because he was the word. That's what's going to change you. I asked a few of our staff members, hey, share a time with me when God's word just completely flipped your perspective, that it just changed you as a person. I want to give you two examples. One of my friends and staff, she said, I hated this man that recklessly took my brother's life. I wanted him to go to prison and never come out. I wanted him to know what he took from me. Then God spoke to me in my anguish and said, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And as a result, I gave, gave it all to God, my anger, my sadness, my loss, and forgave this man for what happened. If she followed the customs and behaviors of the world, she would have just justified her anger. She would have been bitter, and she wouldn't have forgave. And the world would have cheered her on and said, you go, girl. But then she goes to God's word. It changed her. 
I'm not talking about made her better. We don't want to be a better version of ourselves. We got to change, transform to Jesus. All of a sudden, her anger, her bitterness, her sadness, gone. Because she knew God would go ahead of her. She didn't have to trust herself. She didn't even have to trust the court system. She just had to trust Jesus. Changed her perspective on the person that took her own brother's life. Another friend of mine, he said, I was a fairly new Christ follower. At my work, management was tough on us. It felt like any time the manager came to talk to you, it was because you weren't doing right. Some of us know exactly what that feels like. And then I came across Colossians 3, 22 through 24. It says, work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, that the master you are serving is Christ. For the first time in my life, I realized my job was a way to serve Jesus. This changed how I viewed my job and my manager. When you go to work tomorrow, you hate your boss, and maybe rightly so. Or your coworkers drive you crazy, or you just don't like the work that you're in. Imagine if you went into work tomorrow and said, I am here to serve Jesus. My work is a means by which I can bring glory to God. How would that change your job? How would that change how you work? How would that change how you relate to your boss? I mean, think about that. God's word changes you. It transforms you. It gives you a new purpose and a new reality. That's the power of God's word. But you just can't read it. It's got to read you. And you just can't spend five minutes on it once a week or come to a service or just skim a verse like we do on an Instagram or a Twitter post as we're just scrolling through. No, no, no. It has to live in you. You have to eat it. Enjoy it. But you may say, well, Eric, when I saw the verse in verse 10, it doesn't say just that it's sweet. Look again. So John says, I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet to my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. How does it go from this sweetness, this satisfaction, this life-changing document to giving John a stomachache? Why? Well, verse 11. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. We're going to learn more about this in Revelation 11 next week. But let me tell you, here's the problem. John just didn't take in God's word for himself. He had to take it in and then share it with others. He was going to share it with a people who did not want anything to do with Jesus, want anything to do with scripture, and they were going to turn on people who call themselves Christ followers, and it gave him a little bellyache. Sound familiar? If I told you right now, hey, here comes a friend or a coworker or a family member, go share Jesus with them or go tell them about the Bible, you would about ready to puke. Because <laughs> you know, well, I know where they are with God. I know they're antagonistic. I know they don't believe. And you're probably right. And you may have the right to have a stomachache. But what if the person doesn't respond like that? There are many of you in this room, at one point in your life, you were like, I want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with scripture, nothing to do with church, but you're here. Someone shared God's word with you, and all of a sudden it, it went from sour to sweet. So even though God's word and the thought of sharing it gives you a stomachache, that should not stop you from sharing the truth because everybody needs to hear about the bread of life that will satisfy and change them because everybody is searching. Everybody wants what God only has for them. And that's going to come from his word and that's going to come from his followers. 
truly sharing it with others. Even if people reject you, are you still willing to share it? As we close our time together, I just want to pray. But I don't want to pray for you. I do want to pray for you, but I want to pray for somebody else. We say at the chapel that we need to be praying for my three. My three is a way of saying there are family and friends that aren't next to you today, that don't believe in Jesus, that aren't going to church, that don't believe in the Bible. And it's our job, our calling, even though it gives us a stomachache to share God's truth with them. And so can I join you in just a private moment of prayer, of praying for your three, and then we'll close in prayer. Lord, we saw last week in Revelation chapter 8 that our prayers surround your throne. The people that we're praying for right now, we may not see them come to know Jesus in our lifetime, but maybe in the next lifetime. We are here because of people's prayers. We are here because people shared God's word with us. I join my friends today in praying for their three as I pray for mine. That the people that we are longing to know you would open up their eyes to your truth and the way that's going to come could be through us. So instead of being self-protecting and wondering what they're gonna say, may we be bold and honest and loving and kind as we share God's word. Would they open their hearts to you, Jesus, we pray in your name, amen. As we're dismissed, would you stand with me and as we do every week, we wanna read together Revelation 1 through 4 or one verse four, excuse me. This is our benediction. Would you say it with me? Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Have a great day.